Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Welcome to the Audio Information Network of Colorado's High Country News Program. I'm K.G. Greenspun, reading from the March edition. The Sentinel. What does a statue dedicated to the mothers of Butte, Montana, reveal about women's rights? Feature cover story by Leah Sotile. She stands in the wind, 8,510 feet atop the jagged Continental Divide, at a place where the northern Rocky Mountains slice through the dry brown summer landscape like a saw blade. She's always waiting, watching over the people of Butte, Montana. Her broad blank face is framed by a veil made of steel, and her hands emerge from the folds of a long, flowing dress, palms forward. In the dark night sky she shines bright white, lit up by spotlights near her feet. Officially, she is called Our Lady of the Rockies, but most people here simply call her The Lady. At 5,539 feet above sea level, higher than any other major city in the state, Butte is often frigid, and temperatures hover near zero for months. Most of the year, the statue of the lady is surrounded by deep, impassable snow, so it's only during the brief window of warm summer weather that visitors can see her up close. Ambitious pilgrims might hike up steep switchbacks to get to her, but most pay a few dollars to take a bus up a winding, rocky dirt road carved into the mountainside. The statue was constructed in 1985 when the economy of Butte, which relied on jobs at the Anaconda Copper Mining Company and the Atlantic Richfield Company, all but collapsed as the mines largely shut down. A group of local men banded together to build a statue of the Virgin Mary, a project originally conceived by a local worker whose wife was severely ill. Guided, they felt, by a divine hand, they coated steel panels in white paint and welded them together until, eventually, the shape of a woman, ninety feet tall, emerged. Once she finally stood in place, they dedicated her to women everywhere, especially mothers. The story is so beaut. Christy Hayes Pickett, a local folk musician, said, standing at the foot of the lady last summer. From Butte, the lady looks immaculate, but up close she looks tired and worn, rumpled in places, the white paint now blotchy and gray, as if the hem of her dress has been dragging around in the dirt of some earthly, non-celestial place. All these people came together to make this, Hayes Pickett said, and they did it because so many people were out of work. It was this true labor of love, and I feel like that story resonates in this community over and over again. Butte is a city of stories about hard rock miners, labor unions warring in the streets, legendary rebels, and insatiable corporate greed. These tales of work and workers are passed down through generations in high school classrooms 
over dinner tables and at local landmarks. In these stories, Butte is defined by all it once had, everything workers endured, and everything they lost. Hayes Pickett turned to follow the statue's long gaze to the west, range after range after range of mountains fade out to the horizon in shades of withering blue. Below, next to Butte's compact grid of streets and homes, three gigantic chasms dwarf the city, each gouged out of the earth by miners and their machines. Hayes' husband was down there, driving a truck across the bottom of one of the craters, an active copper and molybdenum mine. Another is a massive tailings pond, though pond undersells its size. It is an enormous and unnatural lake where the active mine's waste is stored, held back by a 750-foot-high dam that Montana Resources is currently making even taller. And nestled closest to Butte is the hole that gave it its modern-day reputation, the Berkeley Pit. It's a former copper mine that closed in 1982, now filled with 50 billion gallons of poisonous blue-green water that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency said will require treatment in perpetuity, like a wound that will never heal. Since 1983, when the EPA declared the area a Superfund site, it has been one of the largest cleanup projects in the country. Around Montana, people raise their eyebrows or turn up their noses at the mere mention of Butte because of this. It is a place with a toxic pit, and somewhere along the way, Butte seemed to understand it was being ostracized and decided to be the one doing the ostracizing. Locals began calling their city Butte America, foregoing any state affiliation. They described themselves as Butte Tough and splashed Butte versus everybody across t-shirts, delineations that felt less like civic slogans and more like civic calluses. Mining employs only about 300 people in Butte now, but it still shapes life here. Old-timers might tell someone to tap her light, a callback to when dynamite was tapped carefully into underground holes, but today suggests that someone should both have a good day and stay alive as best they can. Visitors pay $2 to gaze into the Berkeley pit from a viewing stand. The Chamber of Commerce collects money. Homes sit on wide streets named copper and zinc and quartz and aluminum. At first glance, demographic history could explain why a towering statue of the Virgin Mary looks out over the city. Thousands of miners from around the world flooded into Butte in the late 1800s, especially Irish Catholics. By 1900, Butte was 36% Irish. Today, there are four active Catholic churches and an Irish-American population that, per capita, exceeded even Boston's as of the 2010 census. The story most often told about the lady is the story of the men who made her, their actions, their beliefs, and their struggles. 
left out of that story are the women of Butte, who they were before the statue was built, and who they have become since. In June 2022, a majority Christian bloc of United States Supreme Court justices overturned Roe v. Wade, the landmark decision that, for 50 years, affirmed the constitutional right to abortion. The reversal of Roe sparked widespread concern that religious beliefs were seeping into law. Editorial writers debated whether the separation of church from public life was actually a utopian creed rather than an unbreakable code. Montana voters in recent years have turned the state a bright shade of red on electoral maps, ushering a Republican supermajority into the state house. Yet most Montanans still believe that abortion should be legal. Butte is one of Montana's Democratic strongholds, and people were angry when Roe fell. A crowd gathered outside the Butte Silver Bow Courthouse, where Monica Tranel, a Democratic candidate running for the U.S. House of Representatives, yelled from the stone steps, This is about power and control, she shouted. This is about the oligarchs having power over us, the people. And we here in Butte, America, we know how to be the voice of the people. Amanda Curtis, a former state legislator from Butte, who now leads the Montana Federation of Public Employees, the state's largest labor union, interpreted the decision to overturn Roe as a direct attack on women's ability to work and, as a result, a direct attack on everything at the core of Butte. To take away a woman's right to decide how and when and if she procreates is so fundamentally offensive, she said. Our independence from men, or from any partner for that matter, depends on our ability to earn enough money to pay rent and gas and buy groceries and have heat. Having kids puts more expense on you and at the same time takes away your ability to make money. By the time Roe was struck down, the lady on the mountain had come to represent something bigger, perhaps, than its builders ever imagined. Not just Mary, not just mothers, not just women, but rather female power and agency. It represented how Butte sees women, remembers women, and also how it has failed to see and remember them. For tens of thousands of years, the Pendoriel and Salish people have lived in what is now called western Montana, harvesting bitterroot in spring, then kamas and wild roos in the summer. The valley where Butte sits was a common hunting area where people fished the clear waters of Sintapki, now called Silverbow Creek, with arrows. The easternmost edge of Salish and Pendoriel territory extends to where the city of Anaconda is now, 24 miles west of Butte. In 1855, the Hellgate Treaty ceded 12 million acres of indigenous land to the United States. 
the people were forcibly moved to the Flathead Reservation, far to the northwest. Catholicism had already arrived in the 1820s Catholic Iroquois employed by fur trading companies told the Salish and Pendoriel of the Black Robes, Jesuit priests, and in 1831 the tribes dispatched representatives to St. Louis, asking missionaries to return west with them. In 1840, Father Pierre Jean de Smet traveled to the region to preach the gospel. But indigenous stories aren't widely celebrated in Butte. The stories it tells and retells are copper-colored, tales from that post-colonial moment when America became a capitalist paradise and Butte its gilded Garden of Eden. Butte began as a silver mining camp in the mid-1860s, but after rich veins of copper were discovered in the early 1880s, a five-square-mile section of the town was heavily mined, producing about a quarter of the world's copper supply and roughly half of the United States's. Within two decades, by 1882, the mines had produced nine million pounds of copper. By 1896, they had unearthed 210 million. The world rushed to Butte. Men from China and Finland, Ireland and Sweden, Italy and Serbia and Germany scrambled toward Montana, vying for jobs in mines run by the Anaconda Company and others. Back then, the city was thick with acrid, arsenic-laden smoke from smelters dotting the landscape. Sometimes it was so thick, streetlights were turned on at midday. The thicker the fumes, the greater our financial vitality, boasted the local newspaper. Butites feel best when the fumes are thickest. Mining waste was dumped in piles around the city. All the trees were cut down to make way for the mines. Meanwhile, the Copper Kings made Butte their playground. The millionaires exerted political influence and controlled the newspapers. By 1888, William Clark had built a 34-room mansion in uptown Butte, uphill from the rest of the city, for the equivalent of $8 million today. The buildings of Uptown, now part of one of the nation's largest national historic landmark districts, still show off the gilded side of the city's past. Streets are dotted with palatial brick Victorians, addresses painted on in flakes of 24-karat gold. The Hotel Finland still drips with crystal chandeliers. But 14 long-shuttered mining headframes tell a darker story. The sharp angles of black steel, once used to lower miners about a mile underground, now loom on the skyline like tombstones to the dead hard rock mining industry. Each bears a sign denoting the mine's name, depth, and the number of people who went down and never came up again. The original 43, the Anselmo, 36, the Khan, 172. 
In early June 1917, 168 miners suffocated at the Granite Mountain Spectacular Mine. Between 1870 to 1983, some 2,500 men lost their lives in the mines. This gained Butte a grim nickname, the City of Widows. The poor working conditions impelled labor unions to rise and become a powerful force in the city. The Butte Working Men's Union No. 1 formed in the 1870s, and within two decades it evolved into the first chapter of the Western Federation of Miners. By 1900, some 18,000 local tradesmen had unionized a third of the miners. With unionization came bloodshed, culminating in 1914 in a series of riots when miners clashed in the streets over whether the WFM was serving their best interests. An acting mayor who called for calm was thrown out of a second-story window. Bullets flew, killing a bystander. The Union Hall was ransacked, then dynamited. Today, a plaque remembering the explosion hangs over a pile of century-old broken bricks left where they fell. The Anaconda Company reacted violently, too. At one point, guards shot at strikers, killing one and injuring 16 others. On the night of August 1, 1917, Frank Little, a famed industrial workers of the world leader who'd come to Butte to rally miners, was rousted from sleep by six unknown assailants, widely believed to have been hired by the company, dragged behind a car and lynched from a railroad trestle. At Mountain View Cemetery, a graveyard across from a Walmart, Little's grave lies in a quiet corner while the lady watches from the ridge above. It's surrounded by a shin-high cast-iron fence threaded with fabric flowers. His headstone reads, Slain by capitalist interest for organizing and inspiring his fellow men. In winter, offerings left by mourners are covered in a dusting of snow, a handful of coins, a half-drunk bottle of whiskey, a pair of stiff work gloves, the palms upturned and filled with bullets. Then there are the stories of Butte's women. In 1890, the Women's Protective Union set out to create solidarity for female workers. The Ladies of Butte God bless them, are not going to be behind their brothers in demanding their rights, read one article published at the time. Ellen Crane, former director of the Butte Silver Bow Archives, said that WPU membership was open to anyone who had the potential to have a child. Basically, you had to have a uterus. Cooks, usherettes, bucket girls who packed thousands of lunches for miners every day, and maids were eligible to join. The WPU organized under the Western Federation of Miners, so if they went on strike, 6,000 men would go on strike with them, Crane said. They were smart because they knew where the force was. 
It was not in the bylaws that sex workers were not allowed, nor was it lit, nor was it in the bylaws that they would be allowed, but we have no evidence that they were ever a part of the Union, she said. Historians have documented how large-scale sex work operations often emerged side-by-side side with mining camps around the West, and Butte was no exception. Butte's sex workers were operating at least one hurdy-gurdy house by 1878, and soon the city had its own bustling red-light district full of working-class female boarding houses. There were cribs, clusters of cubicle-sized rooms where low-paid sex workers serviced their clients, near high-society brothels with names like the Windsor, the Royal, and the Dumas. Sex workers were seen as public women belonging to all men, not one man, and therefore not quite women at all. Mary Murphy, a historian and professor at Montana State University, wrote in 1984. According to scholars, the sex trade bolstered the mining company's power. Prostitution and other forms of vice, like everything else, ultimately served the company. Ellen Baumler, an interpretive historian at the Montana Historical Society, wrote in 1998, A thriving red-light district meant that thousands of single miners would spend their time and paychecks on entertainment rather than organizing against their bosses. Newspaper archives support the theory. In January 1902, as Butte Alderman debated whether or not the red light district should be relocated, one official admitted that we are getting part of our salaries from the price of the shame of these people. The police chief told the council that he kept 10% of the fines he levied against women in the red light district each month, as in preceding administrations. The aldermen agreed to leave the brothels alone. Employment opportunities for women were scarce, even during World War II. Union officials at the Anaconda Company and other surrounding outfits refused to employ them in the mines. They confronted a dichotomous ideology that viewed women as either good or bad, Murphy wrote in her book, Mining Cultures, Men, Women, and Leisure in Butte, 1914-41. The city codified this polarization in 1914 when the council passed an official vagrancy ordinance that drew a moralistic line between women and lewd and dissolute female persons and threatened to arrest women who acted in an improper, profane, or obscene manner within the sight or hearing of women. Between 1895 and 1920, 101 of the 103 Butte women who died violently were working women, the type of women that the Women's Protective Union ostensibly hoped to shield from workplace abuse. Twenty-five of them were sex workers, not in the Union. These assaults seemed to have occurred in direct correlation with women's attempts to expand their horizons or improve their position. 
according to a master's thesis in history by an MSU student in the mid-1980s. Challenging traditional roles, the thesis read, resulted in their deaths. This intense scrutiny of women was not lost on Mary McLean, who in 1902, having just graduated high school, broke into the literary world, seemingly overnight, with her portrayal of life in Butte in a book she originally titled, I Await the Devil's Coming. According to Murphy, McLean was a child of failed fortune, led to Butte by her stepfather, who moved her family into a two-story red house. He hoped to strike it rich, but did not succeed. McLean's memoir was a fearless confessional by a young woman desperate to claim her identity. She was bisexual, feminist, radical, but feeling trapped in a city of dry, warped people that she felt could not understand her. She wandered Butte at night, concluding that her female body was hampering her ambitions. Had I been born a man, I would by now have made a deep impression of myself on the world, she wrote, but I am a woman. McLean's memoir later drew the praise of Ernest Hemingway and Gertrude Stein, but one of Butte's newspapers called her a mental freak. Today, the women of Butte are remembered quietly, if at all. There is no plaque outside McLean's house, and most of the red-light district has been demolished. But there is a plaque on Mercury Street affixed to the red-brick Dumas brothel, which officially shot down, shut down operations in 1982, 65 years after prostitution was outlawed in Montana. An out-of-towner owns the building in which there is a small museum that is accessible only by appointment. Inside the Dumas, information about its history is printed on paper and glued onto poster boards, nailed to the cracked walls. Down a chipped and water-stained staircase, beds are crammed into musty rooms and empty liquor bottles and piles of loose change are flung onto dressers. Most history like this disappears, Chris Fisk, a retired Butte High History teacher, said. We're privileged to have it still standing. It's as authentic as you can get. And that's the time we have for today. I'll try to finish this next week. You're listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.